Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories. What inspires their creations? What decisions changed their careers? What relationships influenced their work? Today, two New York City icons, a hotelier and the brains behind Studio 54, Ian Schrager and Sarah Jessica Parker, actress and purveyor of all things fabulous. Sunday nights in the late 90s and early 2000s, this sound could be heard in homes all over the country. Over six television seasons and two feature films, Carrie, Miranda, Charlotte, and Samantha navigated the complexities of single life in New York City. The idea that there's only one out there, I mean, why don't I just shoot myself right when now? When HBO's I'd Sex like in the City wrapped in 2004, it left millions of empty cosmopolitan glasses in its wake and changed the conversation at brunch forever. Do we want another round? What do you think? It also made stars of all four of its actresses, most notably the show's narrator and my first guest this hour, Sarah Jessica Parker. I am someone who is looking for love. Before Carrie Bradshaw transformed Parker into a celebrity fashion icon television producer, Sarah Jessica Parker was a working actress, and work was actually an escape for her. She was one of eight siblings growing up. You know, it was insane in our home. And your, but in your childhood, you started working very young. Mm -hmm. you, were, you were a child. I was actor. eight. You were eight. Mm -hmm. And what do you remember about your childhood? Um, I'm not certain how we sort of recreate how we felt about our childhood because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to sort of fix the things that were painful or change the disappointments to triumphs or the struggles to ease. I remember everything about my childhood it, and I think the memories are vivid because it was a very vivid life. It was a colorful, energetic, unpredictable, exciting, scary, sad, ebullient life. And um, I think I benefited from that in countless ways far more than I would have if it had been easy. I think I loved working because it allowed me something of my own, time to myself, something that I felt was mine. Were your siblings performers, any of them? My brother Toby was right. an actor right. um, and was started working before me. And then we eventually worked together a number of times. And I think he would also say that he loved this independence from his siblings, money, knowing that we had this, we were creating like a pass. You remember your passbook at the bank? You you and I have that in okay. common. Okay. So all of those were wonderful. Going home was a little dreary after a day of independence. But I think about days that I didn't want to be in my home. And I think about days that I got to be out working as an actor, that, you know, getting through the days that, that I found not always super pleasant. <laughs> um, I earned those days away. I earned the $5 they gave me for my dinner money or this opportunity to pretend to be somebody else. So I liked the balance of the suffering and the reward. Is that crazy? I no, don't know. no. I, I think that I, I remember when, when I worked and I got a job 
And I remember I just felt strange. I mean, they, they, I, I did a television soap opera in New York that was the lowest rated soap opera. <laughs> Which one was I it? I did The Doctors on oh, NBC yeah, before yeah. they were canceled. Were you a doctor? No, I was the bastard son. I was the swindling son <laughs> of a doctor. The scion? And I get this job. Uh, they pay How you. How old were you? Do you remember? I was 20, uh, 22, 1980. Uh, yeah. And I get the job, and they pay me the minimum. Yeah. And I get a check for whatever, like $65,000 the first year. I remember sitting there thinking, Holy I cow. make more money than my dad. Yeah, yeah. Who's yeah. been teaching for 28 years yeah. at a public school. Yeah. And I felt funny. Yeah. I felt weird. Yeah. Like, people will always sometimes smack you or swat you and say, what do you know? You're out of touch because you, all you people are so overpaid. And there's a part of me that sits there and goes, yeah. I mean, the, it is cr- kind of crazy. But, but, but no, I have to ask you a question. Wait, let me just go back because I think it is curious when you're criticized or, or there is a conversation around sort of that you might be out of touch or you're not, you know, you don't recognize what it means to work hard. On one hand, you can say it is true. Um, lots of people make absurd amounts of money and it, none of it's just, none of it makes sense and none of it's fair. And it's, but I think the accusation of you're being out of touch or you're not aware of what it means to work hard, that's the part of that kind of charge that I am most frustrated by because a lot of people I know who work in entertainment, theater, show business, didn't come from anything and simply worked incredibly hard and were willing to to work hard and earn nothing. And every now and then a job comes along that does pay. And that, you know, that's wonderful. And almost everybody I know is thrilled and appreciative. So the idea that, you know, we're sort of blithely going through life, you know, not aware of um, how, how out of are. whack it is and yeah. how lucky we are to, to and, 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 the, and the other part of that, I find, is that other people have jobs where there's a meritorious system of ascendancy. Mm-hmm. You go to high school, you do well, you get the good SATs, you get the GPA, you get the right scores, you go to Harvard. Mm. And in our business, you can be great and do great work. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're going to move up. Sometimes the most successful people are, are not the most talented people in terms of the kind of complexity of their acting, if you will. Yeah, and Some I think them. the unpredictable nature, I mean, and it, it's, it's impossible, you know, to compare career trajectories and paths and choices. But there are things that are, you know, obviously very unstable about making these life choices. And, and most people, you know, really... Everybody I admire basically has not really, you know, hit the pay dirt the way that I think they should have. And so, you know, I'm, I'm particularly yeah. sensitive to the idea that, I, that I'm not aware of what it means to work hard and, and that I'm not aware of the imbalance of, you know, the sort of – it's not, you know, But I want to talk to you. For me, what is interesting is you, I mean, eventually you become very famous, it's you, it's Mary Tyler Moore, it's Gene Stapleton, and you become one of the most prominent women in the history of television. Before Sex in the City, when someone hired you, what were they hiring you for? Well, they were usually hiring me to play, uh, for a while I was the cerebral best friend of the pretty lead girl, subversive or... Uh, could be a clever person, witty, um, maybe bitter, uh, you know, uh, funny, buoyant. Um, uh, wisecracking. Wisecracking, but not overly confident. 
those were the roles, never the lead. You know, Footloose, I was the spirited best friend of Laurie Singer. She was the beautiful, withholding, I don't know, <laughs> desirable uh, lead. And But one, once again, I will say, and I couldn't mean this, and it's not that I'm looking back on it fondly and kind of creating affection for a time or a place, I really... I thought I had it all. I would work in the theater all the time. I would play these smaller parts in movies. I would do television shows. Um, I assumed that the leads were really only made for a particular type of girl and then woman. And I understood that I just wasn't going to ever be that person. And I talked myself into believing that the roles that I got to play were more <laughs> complex people. They were more yes. nuanced. Yes. They were more Good interesting. Lines. Sometimes that was the case, not always. But the opportunity to work, to move from job to job, was the best because I was constantly figuring out new relationships, new people. How did they work? How do I work? What do I want to do like they do? What do you I make never... a lot? Of, you make a lot of films. You, yeah. I, I remember that. But you, all the people you get to meet. I mean, those days of like running to a payphone, checking your voicemail. I mean, sorry, checking your answering machine. It was like, you're like, oh, there's a lot of calls. It's a lot of calls. You have 39 messages. New messages. Just the potential of that next job. And then what happened? And then um, uh, Kevin Uvane, my agent of 28 or 30 years now, rang me and said, there is this pilot script, a guy named Darren Starr. Do you know who Darren Starr is? I said, yes, I you know certainly do. Melrose Place, um, Beverly Hills 90210. He, they, he said he's written this pilot. He says he's written it with you in mind. So Starr told Uvane he wrote this with you in mind. Correct. Got it. Uh, Kevin Uvane told me that that's what Darren Starr had, had shared with him. Would I read this script? Um, I read the script right away. I was really kind of confounded by the idea that I was a voice that would have come to mind because she was so, this part of Carrie Bradshaw was so unlike anything I'd ever played. And the book had come out before. When? How long? How soon before? um, I would say maybe a year and a half, two years prior to the script. And so I met with Darren. He said to me, you know, I would love for you to consider this. We met at Eat on the Upper East Side which I thought was kind of a fancy place. It's expensive. You know, the menu's pretty dear, like everything on the menu. And uh, I said, you know, I don't feel comfortable doing nudity. I don't. I think we can be more thoughtful about this language. She's a writer. Does she have to use the F word? Isn't she more thoughtful about, you know, he kept just saying to everything, every possible obstacle I can throw in his way to talk him out of hiring me. He had a relatively great convincing answer. Had you been successful at talking people out of hiring you previously? Um, had you had some luck with that? <laughs> I think I'd given people lots of other ideas. Like, don't you think Patty Clarkson... I'm exactly the same way. I'm always offering exactly up Patty Clarkson because I I don't know about you, but I always have these actors in my head that I think are more deserving or better, Frank, simply better. Uh, I always think you don't want me. I always think that. Always. And I always think that there were like four or five other three named actresses that either they maybe meant to go to first, and that when I showed up, they were like, God, we didn't mean that. We meant Mary Louise Parker. But anyway, he was very convincing and um, and really uh, just so tenacious. He just never let the idea go. And 
And I said, oh, and by the way, between you and me, and I'm actually getting married, I think next week it was. I think I'm getting married next week on my night off. He got the day off. Or we're going to get married. Uh, so I don't want to sh- start shooting until after we get married. And he said, that's fine. We'll figure it out. We'll push it a few days. And so I went and did this pilot and... Um, you know, Were you ready to do a TV show? No. And to be honest, at the time, HBO is a very different network. It was a place that was a primarily male-dominated um, uh, uh, network. It was There was heavy on the sports and boxing. There were a few scripted shows, Dream On, um, a football show. Remember Dream show. On? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, there was a football show about a, a football team. You know, it was skewed toward the male audience that existed for the for their sports, their great special sports events. And so I thought, you know, I'll do this pilot. And I loved, I thought the script was spectacular. And actually, I gave it to Matthew and my oldest brother, Pippin. And they both read it and said, without a doubt, you should do this. Really? So I did the pilot, went on with my life. And one day I was walking down the street and I ran into Meryl Poster. And she said to me, I think I was on my way to, to see a play. And she said, oh, I, I, I saw... Um, your television show. And I said to her, what what television show? And she said, did you do a pilot called Sex and the City? And I was like, and I literally said, oh, that's right, I did. And she said, it's good. And I said, it is? I haven't seen it. And she said, oh, no, I just saw it. I think it's really good. I said, oh, okay. So after Meryl Poster saw the, told you she saw the pilot, what happens next? I think eventually I saw it or was forced to see it. And um, there was this discussion of it you know, going to series, and I then tried to get out of it. I called a meeting and said to them, gentlemen, you have to help me get out of this. I don't want to do a television series. I I rethought this. I would like to offer myself up to HBO basically free. I will work for them for the next four years. I'll do any television movie they want, but I just don't think I want to be caught up and tied down in a television series. This is after you'd seen the pilot. After I'd seen the pilot. I might not have seen the pilot yet, and I just sort of panicked. rethought my future and panicked. And eventually they, a producer ended up coming on the show who I did a movie with, Miami Rhapsody. They said to me, look, this is, we'll tell you about this kind of home. HBO is a place where if it doesn't feel good after season one, we don't do season two. Don't worry about that. Just let's try this. We're not going to hold you hostage. I went to the set on the first day and I never looked back. And every day I got in the shower to go to work, I was... I was gobsmacked by the idea that I didn't want to be anywhere else. There wasn't a day that I spent on that set that I didn't want to be there. When I think of that show, because it was a lot of practical locations. I mean, you guys were on the streets a lot. You weren't on the stage much. No, we weren't. And I always think of you like four chicks in a trailer, changing your clothes, and outside you hear, the generator (laughs) whining on the streets of New York. Yeah, yeah. But you loved it. I loved it. I loved the work. I loved the people. I loved the storytelling. I loved the character. I loved the... When did you know you guys had gotten it, though? Well, I felt at the end of the first Cooking. season, um, we produced the whole first season without being on the air. We went on the air, I think, while we were already into our second season shooting. And even though there wasn't a terribly large audience at that time, I just felt that the stories we were telling were successful. I, I think it became really necessary for us as we started to face a second and possibly third season that it had to get, you couldn't hang your hat on being titillating. You couldn't hang your hat on, you know, nor did we want to, on the story of um, clothes and Carrie and the story that told, but rather she had to start revealing why she was floundering. Why, why was she a mess? And Michael just had some 
innate sort of preternatural instinct about Carrie Bradshaw and how to tell her story, and he was why do you think that superior. is I think Michael was you know grew up with a lot of bunch of sisters, a lot of important women in his life. He is deeply curious about women's stories. He can write women. It doesn't really make any sense. Although there have been some great, great screenwriters who've written, I mean, we know them. But he just was very, very... First of all, he loved Carrie Bradshaw. He loved telling her story and was as invested in it as I was. And I think that's why we were such great partners and producing partners, because we were both bitter enders. We will work till we were bloody and bloody crossing the finish line. We cared about it being as perfect as possible, but he loved that girl and he loved those stories. And I think when you're that interested and curious about, when you're a writer like that, it just makes the writing that much richer. Uh, so King's the head writer, and he's a guy with an eye and an ear toward women's stories. Was the writing staff a lot of women, or was it mostly men? All women. It was, um, it was all women. The top of each season, they would um, meet in a writing room in Los Angeles where a lot of them lived, and Michael Patrick's you know, home base was when he wasn't in, you know, shooting our show. And every now and then a fellow would come along and he would sit in the writing room, I think at the top, you know, when they're breaking story and just um, kind of give a perspective that was important for people to be familiar with because there was such a strong female sensibility. And a couple of scripts were written by men. We had one young man for a while, but they weren't as consistent year to year as as our women were. At what point it was when a teeny you're... staff too, very tiny relative for television considered quite small. Guerrilla style. Yeah. You know, at some point the show becomes this huge hit. And at what point in the process did they start to turn to you and say, Well now you're a producer? Well, when and I, now we're going to factor in your input. Well, when I first met with Darren, he said to me, why don't you be a consulting producer on the show or a consultant? And I said, you know, he said, it'd be good for you. You could learn about television. You could learn about producing television. So I said, well, who would say no to an opportunity to learn? And so I was very devoted to that idea. And second season, they said, do you want to start producing? And I did. And I, I said, yes, if they continued to let me learn. And that the, sort of the understanding was that I kind of laid out was that I would only contribute if and when I thought I had something valuable to say. Really, it was an opportunity for me to now sit, be more part of the conversation and learn about producing. And I just did and loved it. And I mean, and, loved and it. One, and one aspect of that that I, comes to mind for me is that in your career prior to this, number one on the call sheet is a guy and you're the girl. Right. So Nick Cage <laughs> yeah. approves you. Yeah. And Bruce No, I was hired you. before Nick. Well, then, then I read then, all the men. But what I mean, but for, for many yes. times in your career, yeah. you're the girl. Yeah. And now you're number one on the call sheet. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you get to decide who the men are that are coming in the door. How yeah. did that work with you? You know, I mean, you have like kind of... Um, Tastes. You, and, and you react in ways that you didn't even know... You would. I would have, you know, feelings about certain names, and and Michael would have feelings, and that was, you know, sometimes hard because he would write it, so he imagined things, and so I couldn't argue with what what he saw in his head. My problem was that I I knew what I was going to have to do on screen with them, and I think there's something very interesting about that, which is hard to explain to people, but you and I can get into it now. So. <laughs> You know when they've given you somebody to play opposite and everybody wanted them but you. 
Because what and you'd you, allow that. And what you know, I would allow it under duress. When someone's holding me down and saying, you have to trust me, you have to trust me, I know you haven't seen this out of this person, I think he or she can do Donald it. Donald Trump is perfect for this part of your boyfriend. <sighs> so what I think is hard to explain to these people, right, the Senate that believes in their choice, is that you know what they won't bring. And you know what you will then have to do is tell the story for two people on camera. And I think what's really, really dangerous about that is you end up projecting onto the other person what you wish they were bringing into the scene. And what I think happens is you become a bad actor. You overact. That's a fascinating You try to create chemistry and romance and love and... You imbue the scene with everything. And you can't because when you feel it, even if you're not in love with this person, I've worked with countless actors who I, I'm not in love with them. I really mean it, but I love working with them. And yes. I can, I don't care what they look like, smell like, where they come from, who they are, how tall, how short. If they're smart and interesting and talented... They're good actors. I do not Talent care. Talent is the greatest aphrodisiac. It's... But then this is the weird part, right? This is the, the, the fork in the road is that I don't need to, I don't even care if I don't want to have sex with them. Or I'm, I'm using that as a if euphemism for, yep, to play with them, right, have, have if, some romance. You just want to feel some friction, some kind of exciting or some, or some love. sword play or love yeah, or, or love. some capturing of something. I did Streetcar Named Desire with Amy Madigan, and Amy Madigan's a real Annie Oakley, yeah. flinty cowgirl. You know, yeah. she's this really kind of tough little girl. And I loved Amy every night I was in love with her. Yeah. And I've got to have that. Yeah. Some feeling for It's them. just so wonderful to have that. And when you don't, it's it's a kind of hard work. That what would you do? I would be, you know, it would be very hard. And you earn your money that week. I guess so. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think it it would be hard, and it would be a different kind of hard work. Like I would work so hard on that show. I worked hours. I would do a hundred and hundred and ten hour weeks. I didn't care. This kind of hard work shows. It made me a bad actor because I would try to keep it alive and sort of you can't play throw tennis it around for, yourself, for both yeah. parties. And I think it makes you overanimated, surfacy and fake. fake. And it's just awful. And it would upset me and it would make me pouty. It's really bizarrely hard. It was not hard for Sarah Jessica Parker to work with Chris Noth who played Mr. Big on Sex and the City. She'll talk about their collaboration in a moment. I would never have predicted that we would have become that close. Take a listen to our archives if you want to hear other conversations with longtime New Yorkers like the late Elaine Stritch. About a month ago, I really said, I want out of here. I want out of New York. I shouldn't live in New York anymore. It's not for me anymore. It's too fast for me, or no, it's not too fast. Then I changed my mind about that. It's not this, it's not that. It's just not for me. Take a listen at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Sex in the City centered around the girls but it was Carrie Bradshaw's love life that was the main focus. 
and it was her on-again, off-again relationship with Mr. Big that fans could not get enough of. Have you got a smoke? I quit. Oh, we always used to share a cigarette together. We did a lot of things that were bad for me together. Chris Noth played Big, and he was there from the very first episode. I knew Chris, and uh, so we did this table read, and I knew after the table read, I thought, wow, this could be good. This Carrie Big thing could be really good. And my greatest concern was that I was going to appear like a Twinkie, that he was so earthbound and so, so masculine, so virile and um, kind of truculent. And a force of nature. That I was going to, my voice would somehow go up you know, two octaves higher. and um, But I loved the story. I said, oh, this is good. The last, you know, these last three, four lines of the script were perfect. And um, but, he, but he is a, so, so special. And we'll get back to the girls in a second, or the women, I should say. But cause since we got onto Chris, you know, the, the thing that surprised me most about Chris was... Um, how I would never have predicted that we would have become that close, that he and I would have become so reliant upon one another that it would be my job to take care of him on more than, you know, four or five, six dozen occasions, that I was really responsible for keeping him happy, that I could negotiate his worst moments and and, and bring him out of them, that that was, that he was my charge in love some him. way. I, I love And the way you love a great him. fellow actor. And always, yeah. and wouldn't have wanted to see anybody else do it, play it. Um, and all these people we meet, and you can have love with them. Tony Hopkins, I did a movie with him. I mean, I can't tell you. Like, every day I was around him, I was like, oh, my God, I want to enjoy every minute of this. Yeah. I mean, he's, I won't be doing this forever, you know? And it's funny because you just can't maintain those relationships. It's such a lesson to learn when you're first starting out and you're on a movie set and it's all done and everybody goes home and you think these are the people I'm going to know for the rest of my life and, you know, write long letters and longhand and and page after page of, you know, the documentation of your day and We're going to get a house together on a lake. Friendships and, yeah, a lake house would be nice. And um, But the truth is someone said if you leave and you stay in touch with one person from a job, that's like a miracle you know, people just go on, and um, so these relationships are are funny and very unusual, and and therefore I think more special because they are this kind of um, finite little. And how we have to pick up where we left off. Yeah, I'd be at an award show, and I'd see someone go, "Oh my God, Cynthia!" Yeah. You know, hug Cynthia, <laughs> kiss Cynthia. Yeah. My daughter would say, "When was the last time you saw?" Her? I go, "I don't know, three years ago." <laughs> I know. It's very you, know, you got to just pick up right where you left it's off. It's the gypsy kind of transient thing. I call them the girls because I once joked with Kristen that the four of you were like the Beatles. Actually, any quartet <laughs> I compare to the Beatles. You all had distinct yeah. personalities and distinct yes. idiosyncrasies. And even the imperfections were kind of perfect too, because we were all really different, and and we had to figure it out and create friendships on screen, you know, kind of prematurely before it meant anything in our real lives. You know how you kind of go backwards. You know, there's a whole history that brought these women together, and we eventually caught up with our characters, basically. Um, we were together for 10, 11 years telling these stories, and, you know, by the end, 
the kind of feelings that we had for one another were like what we were doing on screen. It was very weird. And it took a long time to figure out who we are with one another. But I remember sitting in Morocco for the last movie. We all had trailers, but we preferred to share um, a hotel room. And I thought, wow, this is... um, this is the best it could be. Kim might be lying down for a minute or Cynthia's lying down and I'm reading a book or eating some, some eating something more likely than not. And we're all just in a room, completely comfortable. The very thing you hope for in romance, you're like, I just want to get to that time with this fellow where I can eat in front of him or where I can just read a book and I don't, I'm not worried about entertaining him. Or, and that's where we were as women and friends and fellow actors, and a lot had been written that was untrue and it had been painful for all of us, and we'd been all through it. We had traveled to this other side together and without trying that hard, because you can't really try that hard in real relations. Like, you can't focus it that way. You can't be that result-oriented because they're people, they're human. You know, what are you going to do? You can't force it. But I really thought at that moment, wow, like, if this is it, this is the best this is the and best. Honest. And honest and When you get that honest wave, I mean, it's, it's, I always tell people, it's like that moment in West Side Story when he says to her at the dance, he says, you're not lying, are you? And she says, I have not yet learned to lie about such things. Oh, yeah. And it has to be those people. Yeah. You know, I have a very strange metaphysical feeling about that. It's like McCartney said to me about the Beatles. He said everyone was pressuring them to hire the guy that was the best drummer in London. Right. And the guy came and played a few tracks for them, and they didn't really like him very mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. And Ringo Starr was off fulfilling other commitments he had to other bands that he was uh, associated with. And he came back to record with them, and they all said, it's got to be him or we're not doing it anymore. It has to be us four. Now, for you, well, the fifth Beatle for you guys was the designer, who was? Um, well, there was a toss-up. Was it, was it the city of New York? Or was it Pat Field? Field. Well, (laughs) the clothes were such a huge thing. Yeah, the clothes were... Was that presented to you up front that she was going to become this style master? Well, actually, we brought her in after the pilot because she had designed... um, She had designed Miami Rhapsody, a movie I shot with David Frankel that he wrote and directed in Miami. We knew we were going to um, rehire the costume designer. And he said Pat Field, and I was like... of course, it's Pat Field. Of course. And I had loved working with her, like fallen in love with her. she had that. Remember when I went to NYU, she had that very very idiosyncratic boutique on 8th on, Street. On 8th Street, which was still open. And I did had many meetings with her there. And only later, well into the life of the series or even the movie, did, did she have to leave that. It was the landlord forced her out after all those years, I think 30-some years there. Was she with you all the seasons of the show? All the seasons and the movies. And at what point does it come to you? Do you become where you're really kind of getting further and further untethered from the mothership here of fashion because obviously you wore a lot of very stylized clothing. <laughs> well, like she that. she would have always told the story the same way no matter what. I think the only difference being that in the very beginning we couldn't get our hands on anything. Nobody wanted to give us a thing. Nobody. And we had a teeny, 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 we talk about anemic, we had a tiny, tiny budget for the whole per episode. And so that's why I wore so many thrift clothes from thrift shops. And <laughs> that, that was the only way to fulfill 
you know, something unique. So so she was very clever. So and thrift stores by necessity. Thrift stores by necessity. We went to some rental houses in Miami, in New York. She had a, a apartment in Miami. She had resources in Miami and, uh, frankly, all over. And we just pulled and pulled and pulled. And it was about, I think, toward the end of the second or even the beginning of third season, I can't remember which, someone will correct me, that it was Fendi that loaned us a baguette. And that was like the gateway. That was, you know, the floodwaters. It was, everything shifted. We were able to get our hands on pieces that could help us tell the story maybe a little bit more clearly. That and, so, and so the woman who starred in the show that had a that wore thrift store clothes because you had a thrift store budget for the show. Mm-hmm. As soon as Sex in the City really starts to concretize in the culture and Maureen Dowdnell's, do you have people coming to you going, we're going to do this and this and this and this? And how are we going to monetize? Mm-hmm. Or did all of it come to you slowly? I think the world was really different then, so all of that didn't really exist in the same way. I wanted to do a fragrance and that Whose was, idea was that? That was mine. I long dreamed of doing a fragrance for lots of reasons I won't bore your listeners with. So I actually eventually had the courage to, to say this to somebody. But this was in the days before actors were doing it. There was one. There was the great Elizabeth Taylor signature fragrance, White Diamonds, and really wasn't. And, and Jennifer Lopez had very been really smart about business and the fragrance business in particular. But all of that stuff... Anything that came to me because of the show, I was, like, super vigilant about not doing what was easy just because it was lucrative. I mean, that's always a great challenge, not of course. Not being greedy. Yeah, not being like greedy. And what it. is the real connection to it? And, you know— I would have had them name a donut after me at Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> if they would have written me a seven-figure. I'm not like you. You have a lot of integrity. And sex in the— Carrie Bradshaw is this iconic figure. Me, I would have let them name, like— a tie with whales on it after me at Brooks Brothers. Well, that would have been actually really cute. Okay. I well, mean, that's okay, actually, that's a word for it. That's cute. a connection that isn't so ridiculous, actually. Yeah. I was ready to cash in. I was ready. Let's let's have a Jack Donaghy. I was afraid. Uh, okay, but but you have to remember, Bale Thirty Bondsman. Rock came after. Thir- by the time Thirty Rock was on the air, and the time you're talking about people presenting you with crazy opportunities, the world had shifted. When Garnier came to me, Tina's now the spokesperson for, and said to me. We want you to do hair care commercials. I was like, uh, and and actually this actor who I adored and admired and thought like hung the moon, and I will not say his name, said, just said to me, well, you know, you're being really smart. At least you're not doing hair care commercials. And then they came to me with this crazy offer, and I said no immediately. Nope. Because this actor I admired said to me, well, at yes. least you're not doing Colin Firth told me, how and don't then, you dare. Well, version, an American version of Colin Firth, let's put it that way. And then I said to uh, Kenny Lonergan, who's my husband's best friend, I said, you know, the this, and ex-actress said, no, he said, are you out of your... Are you, you idiots? <laughs> are you... And I was like, is it too late to... Call? Like, I not wasn't practicing it. Do you actually pick up the phone and say, I've been thinking... So I called... Richard Lovett, and I said, I've made this, I think, yeah. this grave error. And he said, oh, you, this so is, is it grave. Isn't it interesting how you go from talking people out of hiring you to talking them back into hiring? You come full circle. Sarah Jessica Parker, full circle, is you calling up the fructese people saying, <laughs> I fructeased up here. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, they were nice and um, forgiving. And, um, the rest is history. Yeah. But, but I want to talk to you about, um, is it kind of, not ruined, but does it affect you? Does it? Because I think it does. It can. Does it affect you in terms of um, 
acting and actions to be married to who you're married to, who's so talented and so polished and so smart and so elegant. And you sit there sometimes and go, I always have an image of you like lying in bed with your husband. I have these very romantic Woody Allen movie images. You're in bed and you have a freshly squeezed grapefruit juice in the Times. (laughs) Who squeezed it? And uh, your son, of course. His parents are stars. Was the paper ironed? Get me, the newspaper was ironed. By a butler, of course. By a butler named James Wilkie. Yes. James, that juice isn't going to walk over here by itself, son. (laughs) <laughs> and you're in bed, and the sun brings you the chop, tray. Chop. chop, chop. Keep start trotting, as they say. <laughs> and he brings you the juice, and you're sitting wow, there, and so your husband and you are just giving each other notes about scripts, and don't you don't want to work with him. <laughs> now, come Who on. Who do they want you to work with? No, 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 no. Do you really? Sense. Can I mean, I'm so flattered. Do you, you, I actually picture that in other people's lives, and perhaps even yours, but included in yours would be a physical a, My wife is a, a yoga class instructor. of yeah. some sort. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean, we don't have that kind of leisure time, and no, none of that has ever happened. Although I will say, there was a time before we had children, do you remember that? Where we would sleep, I mean, do you remember not being in bed with us, but do you remember that time before you had children where you were... I'm trying to envision being woke... in bed with you. Go, go, go. <laughs> where you woke up at like 11, you were like, oh my yeah, God, Yeah, crack time? of 12, crack of 11. It? You're like, yeah. oh, it's 11.08. Yeah. And um, then you would get the paper, and you would sit yeah. with someone you liked or loved, hopefully, and you would read, uh, and you'd talk about coffee yeah. and put another log on the fire. Go to Cinema Village and watch a movie. Yeah, or go to, you know, Film Forum or go to Chinatown on Sundays, um, you know, all of that. I'm so glad we did that, though. You know, as much as I think, wow, that was—sometimes I, I miss it a lot. At least you did it. You did it. One thing I always— never ceased to amaze me was that in my single days, I was married, got divorced, I was single for several years. And whenever I would date women, regardless whether they had law degrees, they worked in biotech, whatever they were doing, we would talk about their television viewing. And they would say, well, I don't watch television. I don't really have time for television. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm thinking of disconnecting my cable. Well, I watch Sex in the City. (laughs) That's storytelling. That's the writing. That's the stories we got to tell. We were just the... Repository. We were the lucky enough. You never want to do a series again? Um, I used to say never. Now I think, would they let me do six or eight episodes? Right. If I could do it the way I like to do things, which is splitting the atoms, the bitter ender, and still be a good parent and wife, yeah, I think I would. You know, it's just about timing and choices now that I have kids. That's the thing. But it's, you know... Like Strasbourg says in The Godfather, this is the life that we've chosen. Yeah. It's a, a dream, really. Sarah Jessica Parker. Coming up, I talk with another legendary New Yorker whose job makes dreams come true for others. He opened Studio 54 in the late 1970s and many boutique hotels and condominiums since then. The nightclub is your primary goal is to look after people, make sure people have fun, elevate the experience, make them comfortable. Same goal in the hotel business. Same goal in the condominium <laughs> business. You know, and so there is a common denominator. There are differences in it. You know, like the people that work in the nightclub business, most of the time they look like vampires in the day. Ian Schrager describes his years in the nightclub business next. You're listening to Here's the Thing. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Come with me as I take you back to the 1970s. 
The Vietnam War was over, the AIDS epidemic had not yet begun, and one nightclub will forever symbolize the glamour and debauchery of the time. If you managed to get through the doors of Studio 54, you'd find yourself among the biggest stars of the day. Warhol, Liza Minnelli, Calvin Klein, Cher, Mick Jagger. The Midtown Manhattan hotspot was the epicenter of sexual experimentation, drug culture, and yes, true disco fever. Ian Schrager opened Studio 54 in 1977. He had started out as a lawyer, but that didn't last long. I got bored by it, so I went into the nightclub business. I read an interview where you said you were driving by and you saw people lined up out in front of a club, and you thought, that looks like a good business to me. Yeah, I mean, Do you really, remember what club? Le Jardin. Where, where was, it was that? One, it was on 43rd Street between um, 6th Avenue and Broadway. At that time, the whole social millennium was being set by gay clubs. Not blacks the way it is now and the way it was before then, but then it was gay because everything was just emerging sexually. And if you had a, a successful gay club, you were trying to keep all the straight people out. Uh, because once the straight people came, the gay people left. And that was one of the first clubs that I call a fusion club, that they're really, it was gay, and it had that kind of sexual electricity in the air that gay clubs had, but there was a lot of uh, straight people there, and, and there were people waiting in lines, and all these straight people were being insulted and tried to be turned away, because everybody just wanted to get in there. That was a business I wanted to get into, because you were giving nothing, offering nothing, and people were paying to get in. Now, for people... My generation, when I say your name, all you have to do is say uh, Ian and Steve, and people will know who the Steve is, but for those who don't know in our listening audience, uh, Steve Rubell, who was your, the late Steve Rubell, who was your partner, how did you hook up with him and how did you meet him we, to we birth the first club? Right. We both born in Brooklyn and different, they, they were adjacent neighborhood, but, you know, different school districts. We didn't know each other. Middle-class Brooklyn, uh, you know, his his dad was a mailman, his mother was a teacher. We went up to school. He was a few years older than I. He was up in Syracuse, and we just became fast friends from the, from when we when we met. You know, I left after four years. He stayed on because it was the Vietnam War. Everybody was trying to stay in school, and and he, when he ultimately came back to New York, uh, you know, we we stayed friends obviously, and 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 I represented him. He went into the steak business. That's when, like, for $5, you could have all the steak and beer you wanted. And he went into the Was it steak... a restaurant he owned? Yeah. What was it called? Steak Loft. Steak... <laughs> it's like unsuccessful, <laughs> undercapitalized... Steak for people who want to go have steak in Soho. Exactly. Steak Loft. And so... Uh, and I represented him keeping the creditors off his back because he was undercapitalized. And then it was during that time that I saw, like, the, the nightclub thing was just emerging... Uh, when it was kind of shifting away from, you know, going into a nightclub and trying to meet people and meet girls and it was pickup places and things like that, it was kind of evolving into like a gay club kind of scene where it was serious, sweaty dancing, right. you know, and, and, and that's the kind of club that I liked. What were the other places that were the top clubs then? You guys opened Palladium a couple of years later, we, I remember we, that. Right. On 14th Street. When we opened up... Um, uh, when we when we had Studio Fifty Four, there was a kind of uh, uh, there was a place called Xenon. Xenon was a knockoff. Uh, knockoff. Total right. knockoff. Xenon was where you went because you couldn't get into studio. Exactly. That's 
glad you said it. Yeah, but but there were some some great, 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 great gay places. Flamingo, very creative. Twelve West. Uh, did, did, now this is a cliche, obviously, but when the early '80s roll around, did AIDS kill that culture? Did AIDS? Uh, it 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 didn't kill it, but it changed things because all of a sudden, you, before AIDS, you, there wasn't anything you couldn't do at night, and it was get much up more the next carefree. morning and walk away. Sure, it was carefree. It was different. Things 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 were different, but uh, but I think the nightclub business got killed, not because of AIDS. But, but but because I think government, when they started to regulate it, it became so expensive to do a nightclub to comply with all the I, rules. I read where you said that where a nightclub to open it up cost you tens of thousands of dollars, right. and now it might cost somebody a million bucks right. to do it. Well, because of why? Because of well, because fire of, you know, exits, fire and... exits, and things like that. So all of a sudden, young people disenfranchised. I did my first nightclub for twenty-seven thousand dollars. You know, you didn't have to know anything. You didn't have to have a lot of money. It was like you roll up the carpet, you put on a record player, and you have a nightclub. And it, that stopped. That kind of raw energy stopped. That happened in rock and roll, and it happened with technology, too, when Apple got invented in a garage. So it changed. The business evolved, and so young people can't do it anymore, and that's why now in the nightclub business, nobody owns anything anymore. They have promoters going around from clubs to clubs because it's just too expensive. When you and Rubel decide to go into business, what did you think he brought to the table, and what did he think you brought to the table? Was it kind of a front-of-the-house, back-of-the-house battery? No, it wasn't that simple. It's just like with a husband and a wife. Nobody really knows what goes on except the husband and the wife. We're 50-50 partners. You're not going to share 50% with someone that's not making a 50% contribution. Sure. You know, we there weren't mutual exclusive fears of influence. I mean, he was more of the people person, and I was more of the creative person. You know, but, but like, for instance, I might be in the nightclub, and I would see Steve, go get friendly with Halston over there. You know, and, and if I was wanting to do something, I would go to Steve, and he'd be like my instant one-man sample. My survey because he had had good instincts, uh, and 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 it, it, it's just so funny. The, the division of responsibility happened naturally. You know, we we had a we had a our first nightclub was in Queens, which was about six months before studio. It, it got killed by Son of Sam. I remember the first night we opened, Steve went to hang out with the kids at the bar in Queens, and I went up and did a DJ booth to play with the lights. It just kind of happened. Out. And that club was called what? Enchanted Garden. And, and then that died after the Son of Sam shoes? Yeah, yeah, it was hard to get people to come into a nightclub when someone was out there killing right, you. On the streets, in, right. in parked cars. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you open up studio, and you, uh, were you married at the time when you no. went to your first wife? No. How soon after your not. studio closed? Not for quite a while. Right. So you could live that life and not have to worry, right. but you were letting somebody down, exactly. crawling in the door at 8 o'clock in the morning. So it was, it was long nights for you. You, you, you were in it. You weren't somebody who was turning to somebody and blowing them a kiss and saying, I'm going home, and you were in bed by 1 o'clock. No, but you know, Steve used to say he stayed too long and I left too early. You know, what would really happen is I'd stay till one thirty, two o'clock till the night... 2, 2.30 sometimes, until the night turned the corner and I knew it was stable, and then I would grab somebody and go home. Now, back or then... Go upstairs. Now, back then, is it safe to say another risk of businesses back then with the credit cards were not that big back in the late no 70s. No credit cards. It's a cash business. And ultimately that was part of the problem was that it was a cash uh, business. We didn't have any money. 
you know, there was a movie once was called The Brinks Robbery. You know, they, right. After they robbed the truck and they were in the room, they're throwing the money up in the air was one of the scenes in the movie. That's the way it was with Steve and I. We, we didn't have any money. All of a sudden, we were the toasts of the town and all this money was coming in. And it was, it was you know, like uh, you couldn't believe it. Right. It wasn't we went in. We weren't motivated by the money. It was just a kind of byproduct. Kind well, of, I'm, well, I'm, try, well I'm trying to be generous here insofar as that when you get yourself into trouble with taxes and so forth, it eventually led to some you know, tough consequences. Was it? Did you find that it was more difficult back in the day when things weren't computerized and things weren't credit cards and you had to handle that much cash? We were the gang that couldn't shoot straight. You know, we were just, it was kind of very spontaneous and impulsive. Uh, it was a, like a kind of silly, stupid thing. Everybody in the whole world knew what was going on. Sure. I mean, it was... It was, it was it and you weren't the only ones, I mean, obviously. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I, I know this has been brought up to you ad infinitum about going to prison. You're, you're there for 13 months, and where did you go? Uh, we were in the MCC here for six months, and then we were in Montgomery, Alabama for six months. So you say we, who's we? Steve and I. So you got to see him pretty regularly. Yeah. What was that like? Oh, it's the worst. I mean, you know, we were the only one that were guilty. Nobody else in jail was guilty. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was terrible. I mean, you know, like even, I mean, if I were to take you and put you in the grandest suite in the grandest hotel for a year and let you have room service, you'd still go uh, nuts. You hate it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just you, you, arrived, you are, are robbed of your discretion as a human being. It's terrible. What got you through that? I mean, you're young, so you're still pretty tough. But what did you keep telling yourself to keep yourself together? You know, uh, uh, we would read a lot and dream a lot. It was a very, very tough thing. Being with Steve made it a little bit easier, you know. Someone who could understand. Yeah, I mean, and someone, I mean, when you're in there with a lot of psychopaths, and 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 it's just it's just kind of difficult. Life is cheap, and you know, and 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 it, it was just a very difficult thing. And and you know, you, you you try and not let them rob you of your enthusiasm for life and your verve for life. You know, you know. And you succeeded at that. Yes. So by the time you're ready to get out of there, by the time did, were you both released at the same time, roughly? Yes. And was, released at the you, same time. You released at the same time. We went to a halfway house here, and I think it was in uh, on 79th Street or something in, on the west side. And you were there for how long? Three months. And then you're free. Right. And when you and <laughs> Even then, very tentative and very... Cautious. You know, very tentative. Couldn't even open a bank account. It was kind of a re-entry. Right. And, and it's tough. So three months, you're out. Uh, you're done with the halfway house. So, w what does the team of Schrager and Rubel? What's the first thing that comes to try to do a time? hotel? A hotel. W why? You know, when we were in jail, first of all, I was reading all these great books. You know, you know, David Applestram. You know, the, the best and the brightest, and you know, and and, and in, which was a kind of study of the rise of the media empire. Sure. And 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 in there, a lot of those guys had interludes in their life. The war, and 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 after those interludes, they all did game-changing switches in their lives and went off in the different directions. Well, you know, the, Bill Paley decided to do CBS after the war, and the New York Times upped the the ante, and so our interlude was forced. But 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 that's when when Harry Helmsley and 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 Donald Trump 
the, the newspapers were playing up this big rivalry. Uh, Harry Helmsley was doing a hotel on 51st and Madison uh, that was called The Palace, and Donald was doing one on, on, on 42nd Street, and they were playing up the rivalry. And that kind of rivalry in the papers sucked me in, boy, and I said, well, we can do a better hotel than than both of them. And when you say better hotel, weren't you actually doing just a completely different hotel? Yes. They're doing big, are they still, is it safe to say they're still doing the old style, big they white elephant the hotels? Style, right. And we, you wanted we, to do we what? We went to a hotel we liked. We went to do a hotel that was, that, 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 it wasn't rocket science, it was just what kind of hotel, we did a club we liked, and, 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 and we wanted to do a hotel that manifested we were our popular culture, not my parents, but 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 what we liked. No rules. Start from scratch, and and, and the Morgan was the first hotel, right. and that was on what street? A thirty eighth and uh, Madison. And so when and, and and why that property? Good story. When we sold Studio Fifty Four, we took back promissory notes. You know, we took a very meager down payment and promissory notes, and we were helping the person run the clubs. We get our promissory notes paid. Well, he couldn't pay the promissory notes. So when he couldn't pay the promissory notes, we traded his promissory notes for his interest in a hotel, which happened to be Morgan's. Oh. And so it was, so it was a hotel before. Right. It wasn't like a private mansion right. or something. Right. It was a hotel no. before. What had it been before it was a hotel? It was a dump. It was called an executive hotel. Right. And it was a dumpy hotel, a rooming house, you know, with, you know, in a kind of very... How many floors? Uh, 14. Right. And you took it over and you just hand-grenaded the whole thing and redid the whole thing. We, 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 we didn't bang on the walls uh, because once you start doing that in an old building, you can't have a definitive budget. So, you know, the rooms are very small. So we took the rooms the way we found them and we tried to have good design, come up with solutions. And we did a lot, a lot of tricks. You know, we made the furniture low. We scaled the furniture down 10% to make the room feel bigger and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a natural hit. Like the way studio was a natural hit. It just... It resonated with people from day one. And now, so after you do the Morgan, do you find now that people are taking you seriously because they are trying to squeeze just you and they recently, are trying to just recently, just recently, you know when when W came out. Up until then, it was still thought of that only people who wear black and live in Soho come to my hotels. Right. It wasn't until W came out. You know, whenever that was, was a while ago, that it gave real credibility. Hey, this is a real idea. Now, there isn't a hotel company in the world that doesn't want to do a boutique hotel. It, it's the fastest growing segment. There are thousands and thousands of versions all over, but it was treated with absolute skepticism and, and dismissively by, by um, because you know why they couldn't, they couldn't put it in the box. They couldn't understand what it was. Uh, uh, and so do you find that the major hotel companies not only want you, because you're doing additions now, is that with Marriott? Yes. And that, you're partnering with Marriott to yes. do this addition series. It's, it's a style of hotel you're going to do with them. Do you find—now, that, that, you wouldn't call that a boutique hotel. I, I would. You would. You know, like, to me, I—you know, because it's so over you, Steve is the one that came up with the name boutique, by the way. Right. 
because we were in New York. The fashion business is probably the central, most important business here. And uh, and when he was trying to explain to people what we were trying to do, he said, look, all the other hotels are like department stores. They try and be all things to all people that's kind of generic. We have a specific thing to say. We're very specific, have a specific attitude. We're like a boutique. And that was the invention and the use of that name, which we've lost ownership of. It's become part uh, of the English language. But Steve really was the first one to use that when he tried to when, to, to, when we were promoting Morgan's and we were trying to explain to people what we were trying to do. Were you closer through Bell? Yes. Where were you when he died? Uh, by his bed. You were. So you were still that close right to the end. You were best friends with him. And you were there. Yeah, we, he, he, we took him to the hospital. We watched the monitor numbers sink. Right. Terrible. Right. He died in 1989. Um, who's been your mentor or who's been your trusted advisor for the last 25 years? You know, by myself now, uh, you know, I have my wife, you know, and I have some good friends. But, you know, the, it, it, uh, it's a loss when you're by yourself. You know, it's good to have somebody to bounce things off of. It, it keeps your moral compass straight. It, 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 it almost operates like a conscience. You know, it, it, it's tough. You know, I'm, I'm by myself now. You don't, you don't have a partner who's just someone you consult? You, you don't have I have a... friends that I ask questions of, but... But no one replaced have... Rebel? No. Really? Never have a friend or a partner like that. Really? Lucky to have that. Ian Schrager. And at least for now, he hasn't returned to his own geographical roots. You know, I came from Brooklyn. My my dream was to come and be in Manhattan. Now everybody's in Manhattan and everybody's okay. dream is to go back to Brooklyn. I mean it's uh, Did you did you ever predict that was possible? That I had no idea what You had no idea what and did you did you I mean I hate to use this kind of slang, but did you get in on that? Did you did you head out to Brooklyn and Queens no, in a I, timely way to develop? Did you develop I totally missed it because I thought I left. I had never gone back. But I, I it, it but you know it's so funny the way these things happen every generation. That's what happened to Brooklyn. 150 years ago, when more women started to go to go over there, it got too crowded here. It was too expensive here. People went to Brooklyn. It's happening again. And for now, without Ian Schrager's imprint, we'll see how long that lasts. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing from WNYC Studios, produced in association with Eldorado Pictures. Pictures.